If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to join us in Genesis chapter 3 as we keep moving on in our series called The Way. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, the Scriptures begin with God declaring, creating the universe and all that is in it, and Him declaring that everything is And that good lasts for two chapters. And so by chapter 3, we meet our, our enemy, the serpent, and our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobey. They leave a trusting and obedient relationship with God. They, are, they, they buy the illusion of autonomy and independence. And so what they do is they turn their backs on God. And then as a result, sin and death enter the world, and in Genesis 3 through 11, the effects of sin and death kind of are traced through all aspects of the fabric of creation. In Genesis 3, God kind of judges the serpent and the man and the woman. And it's interesting what he says to the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, animosity. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, is how it's translated, or offspring, and her seed and offspring. And then all of a sudden, the pronoun changes. Now we've got a singular. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now that's kind of a mysterious sort of promise, but theologians recognize that this is the earliest glimpse we get into what God will ultimately do in Jesus. So there's this serpent who is going to have offspring, and there's this woman through her seed and offspring. There will come a singular he, and that singular he will strike a blow against the serpent, but be wounded in the process. And so we see this is kind of the earliest glimpse of what God was intending in and through this Jesus. But what is so interesting about this is biologically and culturally, the seed of a woman, that was a phrase that was never used. That's just not, the seed of the woman, it's a unique, it's the only time in the Bible there's that expression, the seed of a woman. It's traditionally the seed of a man. Not only biologically, high school students, you can affirm this, but also uh, because culturally everything was reckoned through the father, through the masculine side. So through the seed of the woman, interestingly enough, there will come a he. And, and as the Bible goes on, we find out more and more about this he. Go, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12, where we meet a man named Abram. And we know him, obviously, as Father Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now this is another promise that involves offspring. Abram at this point was childless. And God promised to him a nation of descendants. Later on, he talks about them being as numerous as the stars in the sky or the grains of sand along the seashore. 
But it was reckoned to Abraham that he would receive offspring. And that offspring, somewhere along the line, through that offspring would come a blessing to the whole world. And, and, and what happens, the, the, the more you read the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the, the, the more zeroed in we get. In, in, in Genesis 39, the, there is a promise that from the tribe of Judah will come this ruler. And then in, in 2 Samuel 7, there, there's a promise that from the line of David will come this ruler. And so what happens is you start as wide as possible, the seed of the woman, and then you go from, from the nation of a- that will be built from the line of Abraham, and then, and then from the tribe of Judah, and then and, and from the lineage of David. It gets narrower and narrower. But here's the point I want you to see. That for the Jews... Messiah was going to come from a specific bloodline, from a specific set of offspring. And because of that, protecting their bloodlines was absolutely critical. In fact, we have prayers written and prayed during the time of Jesus where Jewish women, while giving birth, would be praying that God would be, this would be Messiah that they would be giving birth to. So for them, protecting the bloodlines were absolutely critical. So what would happen is they had all these prohibitions and rules against marrying outside of Israel. Because if, if, if Julie, the good Jewish girl, married Harry the Hittite, okay, what would happen is that the, the, the Jewish blood, it was thought, would be diluted, and if that, if that union happened, then for sure that girl would never give birth to Messiah. So for them, protecting the bloodlines was critical. Israel was conquered and conquered and into exile and conquered and scattered. And, and for them, protecting the bloodlines not only mattered for them ethnically, but the promised Messiah was supposed to come through a very specific offspring or lineage. Go, if you would, to the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're just joining us, Hello. Leviticus, the wonderful book of Leviticus, chapter 18. Now there are all sorts of prohibitions against intimacy outside of kind of a set approved group of boundaries that protected the bloodlines. And so Leviticus 18, if you're really curious, you can read it later. Uh, There are all of these prohibitions about, about... uh, forbidden marriage or forbidden unions that, that were all designed to protect kind of the integrity of the bloodlines. Go, if you would, to verse 29. All of these are listed, and then the writer says, Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be what? Cut off from their people. It was such a big deal. If there were any questionable circumstances around your marriage or the birth of a child, I mean, you would be cut off from your people. That's how important bloodlines were. Go if you would to Deuteronomy chapter 23. A similar commandment is given in Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2. No one, the writer says, no one born of a what? Forbidden marriage, nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. Now, it's important to get clear on what this is referring to. 
Someone born of a forbidden marriage doesn't mean, that doesn't reference somebody uh, born out of wedlock. It, this isn't about an illegitimate child. This is far more radical. This, this command dealt with people called mamzers, M-A-M-Z-E-R. Mamzers uh, were the products of a union between two people who under Jewish law could never be married. It wasn't just that they were two Jews who happened to have an accident outside of marriage, and that was it. No, no, no. This was far, in the Jewish mind, this was far more scandalous. This was a tag that was applied to people who was the product, who were the product of a union of two people that could never be sanctioned under Jewish law. And they called them mamzers. Mamzers, the, 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 the designation was pretty devastating. I mean, in Deuteronomy it says, a mamzer could not enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. Under rabbinical law, mamzers could not marry other mamzers. Or excuse me, the mamzers could only marry other mamzers. They were not allowed to marry, if, if you had a mamzer who was a son, and you had a woman who was not a mamzer, you, couldn't, you wouldn't allow them to be married because whatever the offspring was of the mamzer was a mamzer too, was the idea. I know this is fascinating. <laughs> and just to make it a little more confusing, there were degrees of mamzerness. Okay, because, because the consequences were so devastating, what would happen uh, is that the rabbis tried to, make, tried to make the technical, like legal definition of mamzerness to apply to as small a group as possible. So here was the rule. If you were born out of questionable circumstances, for you to be a technical legal mamzer, you had to have two eyewitnesses to the act of conception who were not the parents. Okay, now... Because there are children here, one of the, one of the, they had a pretty loose definition of witnessing. So if, if, if Julie, the good Jewish girl, and Harry the Hittite went into a room for five minutes, that counted as them witnessing something illegal. So you had categories of mamzerness. The harshest one, the most technical one, you had to have two witnesses that said, yes, this conception happened between people who could never be married. But there was another tag that was called a doubtful mamzer. And these were people that just had questionable circumstances surrounding their birth. We just don't know who the dad is. Now, all of this interesting background is necessary to understand Matthew chapter 1. Turn there, if you would. And everybody took an exhale, a deep breath. That We're now in the New Testament and out of that craziness. Matthew chapter 1. Hello, people on this side. You know what's great? The new sanctuary. You might want to look into that because... These great seats would go away. Matthew chapter 1. I'm kidding because you have a great view of... I forget it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, of all the ways to announce the coming Messiah... Oh, are you giving me my hanky? Was, it not, was, it just, was this not subtle enough for you? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Riggs. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. I mean, what an intro sentence is that? His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
Now, you and I read that, and oh, yeah, it's part of the Christmas story, and they rode a donkey, and it's Bethlehem, and isn't it awesome? No! No! We so sanitize this thing and clean this thing up. I mean, if you were Jewish, Matthew was writing to Jews. If you were Jewish, and there were any questions surrounding the birth of somebody, what's the word you think? Bamser. Whether or not that person, that, that could be proven or not, any circumstances where you have two kids that are betrothed to each other, understand what betrothal was. It was a year-long period where two families had gotten together, they'd arranged for their marriage, they'd signed a bridal contract. Okay, They were married for all intents and purposes, except they didn't live together. So if one of them died, the other was a widow or widower. And we're talking 13-year-olds. If one of them committed adultery, it was considered adultery. And that year was spent, the groom-to-be would go and build a house attached, or a room attached to his father's house. So when Jesus talks about, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house, there are many rooms, that's bridal language, because we're the bride. And so the groom would go prepare, and, and they could see each other, but they were never allowed to be alone together. So when Mary shows up pregnant in a little town, can you imagine the scandal? And Joseph isn't the father. So you add those two layers, and then you add, and she claims the Holy Spirit was responsible. I mean, how nuts would you have to be to buy this? I mean, if you went home and said, you saw on the little CNN ticker, 13-year-old Fresno girl claims to be a virgin and is pregnant, you'd go, you know, you probably need therapy or something because you're needing attention. I mean, none of us would buy that. And so Matthew, I mean, of all the ways for Messiah to show up, two teenagers are betrothed to be married, she gets pregnant, and Joseph, so scandalous, I mean, he just naturally assumed, of course, it's adultery. Now, he can either divorce her publicly and shame her in front of the village, or he can divorce her quietly and have two witnesses witness their divorce. So the writer goes on. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, it took literally a specific dream, an assurance from God for Joseph to say, okay. Now, what's interesting is what happens to Jesus in the rest of his ministry because of the question surrounding his birth. Go to Mark chapter 6. See, nowhere is Jesus called a mamzer. He was not, he was not legally or technically defined as such. But there are all of these kind of insults directed to him that have to do with the circumstances surrounding his birth. Mark chapter 6. Jesus goes back to his hometown. Verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? 
Isn't this, and what's your Bible say? Mary's son. Now, that sounds like nothing to us. In the first century, you were never called the son of your mother unless there were questions about who your father was. You were always called the son of your father. Jesus' name was Jesus, Ben, son of Joseph. Even if Joseph were dead, he would still be called Jesus, son of Joseph. We have, or, or, sometimes you would, ha- you would name somebody after their hometown. So Jesus of Nazareth is another way. To call somebody Jesus, son of Mary, was an insult because you were saying, we don't know who your dad is. And so his hometown's taunting him, hey, really? Where'd you get all this stuff? Aren't you just the carpenter? Aren't you the son of Miriam? I mean, you'd never. We have literally, in rabbinical sources, we have hundreds and hundreds of rabbis referred to and introduced and quoted. Not one of them is the son of his mother. So it was an insult to Jesus. It doesn't sound like much to English, but if you're Jewish and you're reading this, you're going, whoa, isn't this Jesus, Ben, Miriam? Go if you would to the book of John, chapter 8. Jesus, at least in John's account, is pretty feisty. He's, he's announcing he's the resurrection and the life and the light of the world. He's making some pretty, pretty big claims. And, and at one point, the Jews look at him and they say, well, I'm glad that you think you're so awesome, but our law requires two witnesses. If you're going to make a claim like that, our law requires two witnesses. And Jesus says, simple. I'm witness number one and my father's witness number two. Done. And who, which father is Jesus meaning? Heavenly Father, right? But notice verse 18. Notice what they say, verse 18. Jesus says, I am the one who testifies for myself. That's one witness. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Notice the question they ask in return. Where is your father? Now, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you come back with that? Oh, there's a taunt. It only makes sense if there was a bit of question about who his father actually was. And, and in fact, if you're curious about whether or not that's the way this should be intended, look later on in the chapter. Jesus, <laughs> at one point, the Jews say, hey, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not. If you were sons of Abraham, you wouldn't want to kill me. You're actually sons of another father. And later, he tells them they're children of the devil, which didn't go over well. But, but... <laughs> But notice the second part of verse 41. Look at what they say to him. We are not what? Illegitimate children, they protested. Now again, what? He didn't didn't say they were illegitimate. And in Greek, you're dying to know, the Greek here reads... They say to Jesus, we are not products of fornication. Fornication is porneas. Porneas, when when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, something called the Septuagint. They had to do that because some of the Jews quit speaking Hebrew. They knew Greek. But they translated mamzer using the word porneas. So when they say to Jesus... We're not children of fornication. Fornication being a word for sexual activity outside of the marriage bond. What are they implying Jesus is? 
You are the product of fornication. And if you're still not convinced, one of the earliest diatribes against Christianity was written by a man named Celsus. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. Celsus was responded to by a man named Origen. Origen was one of the church fathers. We don't have Celsus's writings, but Origen quotes Celsus in his response to him. And Celsus had a part of his writing where he put Jesus in a witness stand, like metaphorically, figuratively, and was interviewing Jesus. And notice, notice how the interview goes. This is Celsus speaking to Jesus in a hypothetical courtroom. Is it not true, good sir, that you fabricated the story of your birth from a virgin to quiet rumors about the true and unsavory circumstances of your origins? Is it not true, is it not the case that far from being born in royal David city of Bethlehem, you were born in a poor country town and of a woman who earned her living by spinning or sewing? Next. This is the big one. Is it not the case that when her deceit was discovered, to wit that she was pregnant by a Roman soldier named Panthera, that she was driven away by her husband, the carpenter, and convicted of adultery. Now, one of the earliest slurs written against Christianity is that Jesus, Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. A Roman soldier named Panthera was Jesus' father. And interestingly, the Greek that reads Panthera is a play on the Greek word for virgin. When you look at some of, the, some of the Jewish writings that get formed into two books called the Mishnah and the Talmud, the accusations that Jesus was the product of either Mary's affair or kind of a forced thing with a Roman soldiers all over the place. Now, my question to you is this. The virgin birth matters. It matters for lots of reasons. One of the reasons it matters is because it's the fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15, right? Through the seed of a what? Of a woman, a he will come. Well, no man was involved. So the seed of a virgin, a woman, here comes this he. But notice all of the questions it raised. Hey, isn't that Mary's boy? Where is your father? We're not illegitimate children. We're not products of fornication. And then notice Luke chapter 2. Go flip back to Luke chapter 2 and go to uh, verse 5. See, we clean up the Christmas story a little too much. Our nice little nativity scenes aren't exactly the way it went down. Now, this next part, I am speculating. Repeat after me. You, Mike, are speculating. I am speculating. The text doesn't say, I'm going to read something into it. So this is speculation on my part, okay? But I think it's awesome speculation. Now, Luke chapter 2, the the very famous passage that begins in those days, a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So everybody made their way back to their ancestral hometown. Verse 5. Joseph went there to register with Mary. And then here's this sentence again. Who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child? And again, we just read that like, okay, cute. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Total scandal. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, 
we may know it in an older translation that says there was no room for them in the inn. Inn isn't the best translation. The Greek word is kataluma. It's used three times in the New Testament. And it means guest room. All, the two other times. And, and it, as there is today, I mean, in some of the wealthier houses in a place like that, you would have a guest room attached. Now, here's what I've always wondered. Middle Eastern hospitality is ridiculously awesome. In fact, in an honor and shame culture, the honor associated to your village was attached to how well you were hospitable, particularly to guests or to people in need. I have never understood for the life of me why when Joseph has family in town, And why a 13 or 14 year old girl who is pregnant shows up, ready to give birth, that the only place she can find is a stable. I've never understood that. If people, if if, if it was too crowded, that wouldn't have mattered. People would have given up space for the pregnant teenage girl. Unless, for some reason, the scandal of their hometown had followed them all the way there. Speculation on my part, but I've never understood why there was no room for a pregnant girl about to give birth. I believe that when Luke says, and Mary, who was pledged to be with Joseph, but with child, that's the reason there was no room for them. Here's the question I want us to wrestle with. If you are God, dangerous game to play, of all the ways you can show up to tabernacle among humanity, why would you choose this way? I mean, I wouldn't mind a presidential motorcade just in my work, you know, just driving from my house to here every morning. You know what I mean? I wouldn't mind, like, like if I'm Messiah, I... I won't have angels showing up to shepherds for crying out loud. I'm going to go a bit bigger than that. And we're going to let Caesar know his time is done and Herod know his time is done. I mean, we're going to have like, we're going to have some fireworks in the heavens for some of this stuff. I and mean, we're just, there's not going to be any question. Why in the world, if you're Messiah, do you make two teenage kids suffer embarrassment so that you can come into the world? Why is it that you arrange circumstances so that Matthew, in Matthew's account, he says it in a way where if you're Jewish, you'd immediately think, ooh, Mamzer? See, the good news of Christmas is this, that Jesus draws near, right? That God doesn't stay away from us in our mess. He didn't look at the world and say, well, you guys screwed it up, you fixed it. But the good news of Jesus is also the way He came near. Jesus arranged for Himself to suffer every human evil possible. And so he comes in the midst of scandal. Why does he do that? Because it robs us of the ability to shake our fist at God and say, you don't understand. See, I mean, one of our preeminent problems with God is he's up there. We're down here. It's a mess. All this evil and suffering and trash people do to each other, it's just awful. It's just awful. It's heartbreaking. 
You don't know what it's like to be betrayed. You don't know what it's like to be abandoned. You don't know what it's like to be insulted. You don't know what it's like to wonder where your next meal comes from. Christmas is God's way of saying, oh, I do understand. Exactly. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be abandoned. I know what it's like to be neglected, ignored, abused, insulted. Any evil any of us have ever experienced this, Jesus has experienced it without sin. Two of the most powerful words that human beings say to each other are the words, me too. Have you ever been, I mean, when, when we had uh, our little boy, special needs little boy, all of a sudden, there are a whole host of parents of special needs kids saying, me too. When you come across somebody, you don't have to give them the disclaimers about how awesome it is. You can go straight to, oh, this is so hard. Right? When alcoholics get together, they're not trying to impress each other with how many days of sobriety. They, it's me too. Drug out. I mean, me too are two of the most powerful words you could ever say to anybody. And I believe that the incarnation of this Jesus... What we celebrate in the Christmas story is the divine me too to a world that wants to shake their fist at God and say, you don't get it. And so God arranged for himself the worst possible circumstances so that he would undergo every form of evil that human beings do to themselves. I mean, think about, uh, in seventh grade, right, which several, you know, probably four years ago or so now, I, I grew up in the great state of Ohio Okay. <laughs> Undefeated, I might add. Great state of Ohio. And, and we don't have pools on every corner. You know, because we could only use them three months out of the year. You know, so we had a big community pool. And uh, what we would do, I grew up in a little town of about 3,000 people. And all of my friends, the entire you know, the entire uh, contents of my elementary school, junior high, and high school would show up at this pool every day during the summer. And I know this will surprise some of you, but back then, and the pool was just packed with picnic tables, but back then, there were certain picnic tables that, that had coolness attached to them, right? There was one table right next to the high dive that was kind of the epicenter of cool, and all the really cool people sat there, and then it, coolness kind of radiated outward. So if you, were, if you were close, like in their glory, you were a little cool too. But the farther you got away, the less cool you were. Does this ring a bell uh, for anybody? So, so it will not surprise you also that I didn't qualify for a table even. I had a little friend named Travis, and Travis and I were by ourselves just kind of roaming around. We didn't even have a table. So there were the cool people, and there were like the semi-cool people, and then we were over just by ourselves somewhere else. And, and, and you know how great seventh grade is, right? You're totally secure in your identity. It's awesome. <laughs> and, and so one day it rains, and, and there were only like 12 people at the pool that day. So where did we all sit? Oh, we sat at the cool table. For one day, we were going to be cool. It was awesome. Until I look down, and I see carved in really big block letters into the picnic table. And I can't say the words because there are kids here. Blank plus blank equals Mike Erie. And the blanks were really vulgar, nasty, insulting words. And I'll never forget it because I look down... And I literally can't, and all 12 of them see me, see this. And I remember what, what struck me was, 
you know, not only that someone took a lot of time to very legibly and largely write this, but that every day the cool kids sat there and that's what they saw. So I took off, ran home sobbing, slammed the door, didn't swim the rest of the summer, just hid. And I spent the rest of junior high and high school working against whatever it was they'd written. And as I got older, I never knew what to do with things like that. I knew Jesus forgave me. I knew Jesus healed me and gave me a new identity, but I never knew what to do with that stuff until I learned about this. When I would bring that to him, and I know this sounds so cheesy, and I can't believe I'm so emotional about it still. And he would say, me too. I mean, I would, why was it that so many outcasts and misfits flocked to him? Was it because they saw themselves in him? For him to come as someone who was marginalized and outcast, the staggering nature of that invitation means that all of us who are marginalized and outcast in our own ways find their place with him. And when it says the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes all gathered around him, why? Well, he loved them. But I don't know that they saw Jesus the way that we see Jesus. Yes, Jesus is utterly divine. God in human form. We will see him and fall face down as though dead, even though we've walked with him our whole lives. And yet, he walked among us, not claiming, what does Philippians say? He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. Taking the very form of a servant. What did that servanthood look like? He came among us in the way you'd least expect him to. If anybody deserved grandeur and glory, it was this Jesus. And he sets it all aside and he shows up in a place nobody would expect. And so where do you meet Jesus in Christmas? Not at the mall, though he's there. And not through the tinsel and all the family weirdness. I really do believe you meet him in brokenness and loneliness. I believe you meet him when you're the only Christian at the dinner table that everyone thinks you're nuts. I believe you meet him when you're sitting and your family doesn't let you grow out of what you used to be, but still boxes you into what you were. I believe that all of those are little opportunities where Jesus in a very soft way, just says, yeah, yeah, me too. And so none of us shake our fist, but instead we fall down and worship a high priest who is that sympathetic. See, Christmas is far more threatening than we've been led to believe because this Jesus comes and he's not domesticated and it's not sanitized. He comes in the midst of ugliness. 
And he still does. And that's good news. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? Lord, would you, would you um, allow us to get back in touch with the mystery and the awe and the wonder of what it is and what it means that you were born in such a way? Lord, would you help us to see past all of the craziness and all of the consumerism and all of the relational stuff we deal with. And Jesus, would you just, would you compel us to come let us adore you over and over and over. Your grace is simply too much for us to comprehend. Your love, your great love, we can hardly fathom it. And so God, particularly for the brokenhearted this morning, would you draw near to the alienated, to the alone, to the ones that feel outcast and marginalized. Lord Jesus, be present and real. And in all ways, God, may you receive the glory due your great name.